the Learnings Podcast. Welcome to the first episode of the Learnings Podcast. In this episode, Tessa Dooms leads this conversation about reimagining a truly inclusive economy. Tessa is a trustee at Gahesu Trust, and most will know her for her passionate and vocal work and contributions to youth development and governance. On the couch, we are joined by Frank Chigane. Known to many for his political and religious role during apartheid, his tenure as a public servant, and continued involvement in civil society, Frank is the chairperson of KTH. The Learnings Podcast is brought to you by the Casey Institute for Inner Work. Um, welcome, everyone. And um, what we're going to be looking at with two very influ- influential societal leaders is the question about how we reimagine our economy so that we end up with a more inclusive um, economy and in a more inclusive society by default. Um, I think we all know the statistics and we all know um, the general ideas around how inequality is such a big part of South African society. We are the most unequal country in the world by Gini coefficient. And we certainly see um, how our history and um, many aspects and very different eras of our history are loaded with inequalities, both social inequalities, but also economic inequalities that stem from that. And in a post-apartheid South Africa, we would hope and we would have hoped that by now we would be moving beyond many of these inequalities and building a society that is not only more equitable, more fair, more just, um, but certainly has as many South Africans as possible, as we can possibly have, um, being able to participate in building our society and um, our economy. And we certainly are experiencing during the time of COVID-19 Um, a special confluence of events, a special confluence of issues around um, crisis and um, health and public health, and how that is starkly um, allowing us to reflect on um, the nature of our society, the way our society is structured, um, who and how people are impacted in different ways. And we are hoping that um, our conversation today will help us shed some light on the question about not only, you know, diagnosing the problems, um, but certainly reflecting, I hope, in innovative and interesting ways on what um, the solutions going forward are. Um, Our guest today is is Reverend Frank Chukane, Um, not a stranger to many people in South Africa, unless you've either been born very recently, and even then it would be an indictment not to know who he is, um, or you just live under a rock, which is fine. Um, it's okay to do that. But um, Reverend Chikane has a lifelong history of um, social uh, activism in South Africa, um, from um, working the liberation movement um, pre pre um, the democratic era, um, working in the South African Council of Churches, um, and working on. Um, the ways in which religion and social justice meet, um, and being a, a founder member and, dire- and um, board member, board director of the Cajiso Trust, which has um, for over 30 years been a source of both um, social relief to many in society, but importantly building um, 
on the society. And finally, he's also been um, the director general in the presidency um, during um, one of our presidential administrations. And so with a vast array of experience, both in government and the non-government space, um, I think we're going to have a fascinating conversation. And so um, welcome, Rev, to the conversation. Uh, thank you very much. And, and um, greetings to all your listeners. Yes. So um, we'll jump right into it because I know that um, from the beginning of um, the COVID-19 experience, um, it's been important for you that as citizens we get involved with um, trying to manage this particular crisis. But perhaps just to start with looking at your experiences of South Africa over a long period of time, um, what links have you seen between how we have experienced this crisis um, in COVID-19 and what the impact of this crisis has been now? Um, and similar uh, or different issues that we've experienced as a country, both pre-liberation and post-liberation. And is there anything that we can see as patterns in our society that this moment helps us reflect on? You, you know, this is very difficult to sum up in a short conversation like this. But let me start from this coronavirus, because I think that's what has really become a wake-up call for South Africans. Uh, the coronavirus has actually exposed the levels of failures of our post-apartheid society. And I thought I must generalize it and say levels of failures of the post-apartheid society because it's not only government, but it is the society in general. And it has exposed and brought to our to the surface the levels of abject poverty in the society, obscene um, levels of inequalities and high levels of unemployment um, to our faces. The reality, um, of course, has reached even people. I mean, as I experienced it in the last few months, it has even reached people who are very conservative. I mean, even conservative people now agree there's something wrong in this country. Um, even the racists, I mean, they are racists in this country. We thought there is no problem. But even racists are beginning to accept that there is definitely something in this country. It's almost like, you know, the George Floyd experience, you know, um, Black Lives Matter. And the whole world has just woken up to it as if it did not exist. The reality is that our experience in South Africa are well known, they exist, and it indicates our failures. The question, of course, is how did we end up here? I think that's really the question we must answer before we try to look for solutions. How did we end up here after such an extraordinary start? You know, with Madiba in the leadership, an extraordinary generation uh, of Madiba, progressive um, economists that we had who worked through this process, social scientists and cadres, I mean, progressive cadres of the movement. The question is, how did we end up here? I mean, although there was resistance, and I'm one of those who can talk about it, 
if we had time. I mean, the first two years, for instance, the business community simply folded its arms after 1994 to watch and see what happens, which means they did not believe in the changes that were happening. There were people who resisted economic change, land distribution, and there were various other challenges we faced. But nevertheless, we had good policies. I mean, the one thing that can be foiled is that we develop very good policies. But where did we falter ourselves? And I think we must learn from our own lessons. I mean, the first, in the first 10 years, we assumed that if government did their best, the society will come to on board. And where there is a 10-year review of government in two, 2004, which was 10 years after the new government was put in place. And that review, which was highly scientific, showed that Government did whatever it needed to do, but the partners did not come into the party. And, and so you could do whatever you need to do, but if others don't come to the party, you do not, don't succeed. So we decided, okay, let's restructure ourselves, make sure that we bring society into it, everybody, and we did our best. But there were a number of policies that went wrong. And I think I must state that before I go to the solutions, you know. To say that, for instance, on black empowerment, um, we thought that that was the best way to solve the inequalities, get black people enter the economy and make it inclusive. Uh, but we didn't realize that those who owned capital and the business had their own plans as well. Co-opt you in, a few of you, and leave the rest outside. And the few went in, made billions, and they were happy about it and thought change is happening. But in fact, change did not happen. And then we Rick, did another one. Yes. Before we, we move on from that one, because I think that's a really important um, point that you raised about black economic empowerment. Um, because yes. some people might read you saying that we shouldn't have had BEE. Um, but perhaps you're pointing more to um, this relationship between government and society. And that no matter what government might put in place, if number one, it's not reaching out to society and bringing society on board, or it has a society that has not bought into this idea of an inclusive economy, it doesn't matter much. And so um, I'd, I'd like us just to expand on that a little bit in terms of who are the role players in society who have not come on board? Um, are we talking only here about business? Are we talking about civil society? Are we talking about... Um, everyday citizens like you and I, um, where was that disconnect most felt that made government's attempts in that initial period not to be as successful as we would like it to be? Now, in this particular one, it is business. You know, I will come to society generally. In this particular one, it's business. I mean, they constructed those um, black empowerment systems in a way that they brought in a few of us and 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 made it very risky in fact they did not risk they made sure that they are covered and if there were losses those black people lost money but indeed others made money but we realized that that is not solving the problem of including all south africans we had policies that deal with 
issues of service delivery, issues of opening the economy, issues of reconstructing the country because we had an you know, you know, reconstruction and development program. Uh, we also worked hard to transform the public service. Many more professional black people went into the public service. We reconstructed the police, the, the army. I always say that we're transforming the state. And indeed, there were gains that were made, but the majority of the people still were left out. I mean, take education, for instance. We made sure that it became accessible. May not have been good quality as we wanted, but it became accessible to the majority of the people until we hit the university level where in the last few years we're battling with that. And so efforts were made. The point I'm making is that we made assumptions that once you put good policies, it would happen. There was a third challenge, which is capacity, just simple capacity to execute even the policies that you have. I went to a municipality on the south of Lesotho, where there was not even a single engineer in that place, and you are trying to run a, a, a municipality. And so we, there, there, were in, there were failures in the system that really made many people to drop on the way. And, and so civil society, let me just put it openly that once government came into power and people thought they've got their government, they folded their arms and waited for government. And some of the mistakes we made was that government will deliver everything. Government will give you a house. Government will give you water. Government will give you that. And so civil society sort of got demobilized. And we only woke up when people were protesting against lack of these basic services. And I think that also became quite a problem. Now, let me just add that in terms of black empowerment, uh, most of those black people who were brought in didn't become participants in the economy. There were schemes that were created where they make money, but they don't become part of the business. And when they've made the money, they leave and, and cash out, go and buy expensive cars and houses, go, out, go to the world, and not even invest what they've made into the economy. So in fact, the economy was not growing to make it available to the majority of the people, which they have not reinvested, actually, in that economy. So in a sense, right. we didn't produce real business people. There are very few you can point at and say, this is a business person. He's not a person who's just living on, you know, rent-seeking type of business people and corruption and et cetera. We don't. Most of the companies that were established through black empowerment, about 30 of them, most of them today don't exist. There is not even a track record. It's very few. So we really have not entered into the economy. And what we need, it's a strategy that will make us to enter into the economy, develop it, 
and control it as the people of South Africa rather than leave it to the few. And I think that's the, the, the challenge. The last thing I would like to say about it is that we never expected, actually the first 10 years were very innocent. I, I listened to the Minister of Finance yesterday to say immediately we put the 500 billion, uh, the thieves were at my door. And we never thought amongst us there will be thieves at the door. And, and, and because of corruption, you can see how it, it increased. And the more you have corruption in SAA, and you've got even a bottle of water uh, bought at 200% profit, you know, you, you, you end up having the society and tax being plowed into SAA when it should be assisting the people. You go to ESCOM, it's the same. You go to various other state entities. So there has been a failure in that area as well. Whereas in the first 10 years, we used to deploy all of that. I remember when we worked towards 6% growth, we said, what is ESCOM going to contribute in this? What Transnet is good? There was no room for corruption to enrich individuals at the expense of the people. And I think that's the failure of the last 25 years, in my opinion. And we need to change that. And the COVID has actually called us to that project again, recalled us to that project to say, how are we going to change this? And how are we going to make sure that uh, we have an inclusive economy where every South African participates fully? Thanks, Riv. And um, before we talk about COVID, because I'd like to use COVID as a way to talk about a way forward, um, yeah. what do we say to people who say that even in the innocent years, you know, the first 10 years and when um, government was seen to be more efficient and more effective, that one of the core problems has been the politics of the country and that perhaps the reason why people waited for um, society, you know, society waited for government was because that was in the political interest to have a society that was dependent on the political elite, that was dependent on the political party and the political structures and government by, by extension. And so um, there was a politics, and I think a politics that people might say uh, that reflects um, a lot of what happens on the continent, where the political incumbents want to have a society that is dependent on them. And that is part of what has kept us um, behind. And others may even take that argument to say that the reason why we're seeing and have seen endemic um, corruption is because, again, for the political parties and the political elites, it's in their favor to be in um, charge of these systems and these structures and to allow a, a small group of people to benefit who are particularly politically connected. Is that not a valid critique um, of our democratic order and the ways in which it impacts on the economy? You know, if you asked me that question 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have said you are, that's, that's not a relevant question. But now we have learned a, a great deal. Uh, firstly, I don't want to give an impression that uh, corruption only started in the last 10 years. So it, it would be a wrong in, in, in impression. 
the reality is that the first generation, second generation of leaders, we call it actually, we've got an associate, um, a family of DGs, first generation and second generation, first administration and second administration. During that time, there was complete commitment to the, I'll use the word revolutionary change of this society from the political class, the DGs, and those who were in the administration at le other levels. And so not that there were no thieves amongst us. I realized that some started thieving whilst we were still there, as you see from the commission. The point is that there was no uh, abandonment of this project. There was a tendency of saying, you can't have civil society that opposes the African National Congress. You know what I'm talking about? Because it was like African National Congress was civil society in its own, so they don't understand why you would have somebody called civil society outside. There was a de demobilization of civil society, and I accept that. But I don't think amongst that generation there would be somebody who said, I want power for myself so that I can actually exploit the people. That happened gradually. And let me say what I believe happened. With the, after the, to the, towards the end of the second administration, it became clear that the problem we're facing of poverty, inequality, et cetera, was so huge that you can't solve it as you thought you could solve it. And people were looking at, my term is coming to an end in, in three years or two years. And people began to think about looting to guarantee their future. I think it happened at a time when we were not aware of it, because there's no guarantee for you being in parliament that you'll be in parliament again in the next election. And therefore, the risk makes people to think about their future. And as that happened, it translated into self-interest. And I think that's where the self-interest comes in, the interest to disempower people and make sure you make money for yourself. The failures at the local government level were extreme. And we made mistakes. And we realized that about 2002, uh, that Actually, we should have put the most experienced people in local government because that's where the delivery happens. That also didn't happen. We made that decision, but it never happened. So there are many reasons you could give uh, for the failures. And when we were supposed to fix it, then you had a regime that came into, the, into power, which was just committed to corruption and exploiting the resources of this country for themselves and their families and individuals. And we have paid a huge price uh, for that. All right, and um, I think there's, 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 there's a level of political honesty that I think is necessary. I think um, many young people I've spoken to in the country have said that um, there needs to be a, a conversation, an intergenerational conversation about not only the transition moment, but about those early years, about the way governance has happened, so that um, the backstories and the assumptions and all of those things are part of the narrative, so that we're not just hearing, you know, we wanted to do the right thing or we did the right thing or our policies were in place. But I think 
there, there needs to be a political honesty um, about all of the challenges and, and I think that would help us go forward. Um, but talking about the, the reimagining and the future, uh, maybe as a... Yeah, yeah, but before you do that, um, before you do that, I think it's important because you also belong to the younger generation. I come from the older generation. I think we must accept that there is no conversation. Uh, we are going past each other. Uh, the older generation does not understand the thinking of the younger generation. And the younger generation doesn't even think they must know what happened in the past. You know what I'm talking about? And I think that's one area that needs to be fixed. And I'm hoping as part of the solution of reimagining an inclusive you know, um, economy, we will do that. Um, um, I certainly wouldn't be of the younger generation anymore. I'm the missing middle now. Uh, <laughs> but as we look forward, uh, maybe it's a good point um, to start with that question about how we, we engage our way through this, how we talk our way through this, how we discuss our way through this in a way that is um, meaningful and helpful. And I think maybe the first point is that perhaps um, COVID is teaching us that the issues are not just fix the economy, that the issues are really a broader social political crisis as well that we need to fix. And that if you just focus on, okay, let's fix the economy, let's just put in an economic policy here and an economic policy there, that that doesn't necessarily get us to the ultimate goal of an inclusive society and an inclusive economy. Um, what are your thoughts about, besides just focusing on the economy, what are the other parts of our society that we can use this COVID crisis moment to strengthen in order to get more people actively participating in building our country going forward? Yeah, no, we need a number of tracks, actually. We don't need only one track. This problem is not a one-dimensional problem. You can have fantastic policies you'll fail if you don't fix the politics of the country. You can fix the politics of the country if there is no high level of consciousness amongst the society, the people themselves you will not achieve that because the, the corrupt and the social element will always creep in and destroy it. And so what we need is a comprehensive plan, in my view. And that comprehensive plan must start with, is there a, an economic solution we can produce if everybody uh, did what it's expected to do? It means, suppose, Everybody was agreed. You need a social compact to be able to achieve that. Uh, that means you must also have politics that enable participation of the people. And I think we ended up with politics that depend on leaders within a party where uh, you've got proportional representation and party bosses make decisions and if they get corrupted, you are all gone. The whole country is gone, including who becomes your president. So we have to amend the constitution to make it possible for society to influence what happens in this country. And some people are saying a mixture of proportional representation and constituency are representation so that you take away the power from individuals and give it to the people. We need to make sure that there is no one single party 
that can take you to the to to the hole and all of you end up in a hole there without having any possibility of changing we must change that we need to reach a stage where the communities the people and this is what i'm working on uh, with the churches and other individuals to say we need to mobilize the people of South Africa to a level where no party can take us for granted. I think it's of critical importance because if you don't fix the politics, even if you've got good policies on, on the economy, it's not going to work. But we need a society that takes responsibility and we must be organized in the way that we're organized during the liberation struggle. Now, the younger generation reads about that but we organized ourselves to a level where we had street committees. I mean, in my street, there would be people who take care of my security. I learned afterwards that there was a house where they deployed a unit to make sure I'm safe within the community. And we have lost all that because we have now become individuals and we want to make money for ourselves, and et cetera. So that's, that's what needs to change. So I would say there are three levels. You must fix the economy, but you must have the political know-how and will to implement those policies and then get the community mobilized to make sure nobody takes them for granted. But lastly, we need to, to, to capacitate our people. And that's where training capacity to deliver expertise becomes necessary and this is where uh, people never understand me i say one thing that china did was to make sure that they've got the expertise and and as a developing country to end up competing with the best in the world um and that's why you you have this huge debate about you know um the the 5g story um, and they had presidents who are engineers who know what the strategic issues are. That's the level to which we must operate without marginalizing those who don't have skills because we need to give everybody capacity to participate in the economy. The Learnings Podcast is brought to you by the Casey Institute for Inner Work. Join us again next time.